The scripture for this morning is 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. If you're using one of the church Bibles, it's page 1227. The title of the message is Facing Those Who Deny the Second Coming. 2 Peter 3, verses 1 to 10. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being deluged with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be found out. Let's pause for prayer. Most Wonderful, amazing, glorious Father. We are so grateful that you have given us this book. You have spoken to us through the scripture and we are so thankful. God, please, what, what, a, what a critical word this is for your people at this hour. Oh God, that we would take seriously what happens in these next few moments and understand that we are hearing the voice of God speaking to his people. May we understand it and receive it by the power of your spirit. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. And I wonder if you've ever woken up on a Monday morning and wished with everything in you that it was Saturday. Yeah, me too. But you know what? All my wishing never changed anything. Monday came anyhow. I want you to listen to me. Jesus is coming. This world is full of people who say that he isn't. They deny the reality that Jesus is going to come back. The reason they deny that reality is because they don't want him to come back. See, they don't want the second coming of Jesus to be 
true. Because if it is, then that means judgment day is coming. And there's going to be severe eternal consequences for the godless way they've lived. You see, they've lived, many people, like he's never going to return. They're never going to have to answer to him. And because of that, they don't want it to happen. They deny that he's coming back. But wish all they might, deny all they might, despite all of that, he's coming anyhow. Just like Monday's coming, whether you wanted to or not. Here's the danger for the church. Those who deny that the Lord is going to come again. Those who deny the second coming will try to persuade us that it isn't going to happen. You see, they'll try to convince us that there's going to be no return of Jesus and therefore there's going to be no judgment day, which means we're free to live any way we want to. And they don't just say that, they'll make arguments to support their position. And to some people, their arguments will seem to make sense. And for some, they'll make it seem foolish to deny yourself all your desires and passions in hope for waiting for something that is never going to happen. But what I need you to understand today is that it would be the height of foolishness to believe the poisonous lies of these mockers and deceivers. So, what do you and I do when we're faced with those who deny the second coming, to make sure that we don't fall victim to their deception. Peter deals with that in the final chapter of his letter. In the first chapter, if you've been with us, you know Peter calls the believers to pursue godliness. He reminds us how vital godliness is in the life of the believer. In chapter 2, we begin to see why Peter is putting such an emphasis on godliness. It's because there are false teachers in the church who are not only living ungodly lives, but promoting ungodly lives. Living uncorrupt excuse me, living morally corrupt lifestyle. Now, as we come to chapter 3, Peter reveals specifically what these false teachers were teaching that justifies their ungodly lifestyle. You see, they justified living a morally corrupt life with what they taught. Well, what did they teach? Well, they taught that there would be no second coming of Jesus. And since there's going to be no second coming, there's no day of judgment. Since there's no day of judgment, we're free to live any way we want. That's how they justified their sin, by denying the second coming. Peter writes this letter to make sure believers know how to deal with people who would say such ridiculous things. There are two things believers need to do when dealing with those who deny the second coming. And here's the first one. Remember what God's Word says. This is verses 1 to 4. I want you to notice what he says in verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you. The first letter being 1 Peter. But watch this. 
This is the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Stirring up your sincere mind. Um, a way of thinking that is pure and free from deception. I'm trying to stir up in you a way of thinking that is clear of any kind of worldly thinking, any kind of deception as it comes to the, as it relates to the second coming. I'm trying to stimulate or promote a way of thinking that is right. In other words, he doesn't want us to buy into any of this garbage about there being no second coming. I'm trying to stir up in you pure thinking, good thinking, right thinking about the day of the Lord. Which we know in this instance refers to the return of Jesus when the wicked will be judged and the righteous will be forever redeemed. So he's trying to stir up right thinking, protect us from having our thinking polluted and corrupted by those who would deny the return of Jesus. And he notices two things. He mentions two things in verse 2. First, he says that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. He's talking about the Old Testament predictions about the return of Jesus, about the day of the Lord. He says, I'm writing to you to, to remind you that these prophets of old spoke about the return of the Lord. They spoke about what they called the day of of the Lord. Here's one example, Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every worker of wickedness will be chaffed, and the day that is coming will set them aflame, says Yahweh of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. That's just one of the many Old Testament prophecies about the return of the Lord. And Peter says, I'm writing to remind you what God spoke through the prophets of old. But he's also reminding them of something else. Verse 2. And the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. The commandment is the teaching of Christ that is passed on through the apostles. I'm reminding you of what Christ taught that you learned through his apostles. And he's specifically thinking about what Jesus taught about his own return. Let me give you one example of that. Matthew 26, 64. This is Jesus speaking to Caiaphas at his trial before he's crucified. Jesus said to him, you yourself said it. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Not only did the Old Testament prophets say the day of the Lord is coming, Jesus said the day of the Lord is coming and you're going to see me coming in the clouds of heaven in power and great glory. Peter says, I'm trying to stir up, stimulate 
right thinking, thinking that's free from pollution and corruption. I want you to, I want you to be thinking straight when it comes to the return of Jesus. So I'm reminding you what the Word says. Why is this reminder necessary? Verse 3. Knowing this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking. This reminder about the return of Jesus is necessary because there will be mockers, he said, who come with their mocking. Ridicule is the idea. There are people who are going to come along, are going to scoff at the idea of Jesus' return. They're going to they're ridicule the whole notion. It's foolish for you to believe that Jesus is going to come back again. They killed him and he's dead. He's not coming back. It's foolish for you to live your life in anticipation for something there's no evidence is ever going to happen. You're just wasting your life. That kind of thing. There are going to be people who come along are going to try to convince you it makes no sense for you to live for some fantasy. That's never going to happen. And Peter said, that's why I got to remind you, because there are people in this world, and in this case, they were in the church. He said, they're going to try to, to convince you it's stupid to believe in the return of Jesus. He said, so you've you got to remember what the Word says so you don't fall victim to this corrupted, polluted thinking. I want you to notice what else verse 3 says. These mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. In other words, they're going to pursue their own sinful desires and sinful passions as if they are never going to have to stand before the Lord and give an account for their lives. They mock the whole idea of Jesus. You're, you're foolish. I, I'm going to live the way I want to. I, I'm going I'm to do all the things I want to do. I'm going to get all the pleasure and all the fun and all the possessions I can get. I'm going to live this life the way I want to live it, because when I die, that's the end of it. That's their attitude. They're mocking the truth that Lord is coming back. And Peter said, I got to remind you what the word says so you don't fall victim to this kind of thinking. And we see what their arguments are. They're in verse 4. One is, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues as it was from the beginning of creation. In other words, one argument is the passing of time proves that he's not coming back. It's been all these years and it's never happened. There's no reason to believe it's going to happen. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus died and went back to heaven. What in the world makes you think he's going to come now? That's one argument. Another argument is... Notice what it says. All things continue just as they were from the beginning of creation. What they're arguing here is that God has never intervened in creation in such a cataclysmic way as you're thinking when you talk about the return of Jesus. When we think about the return of Jesus, we're talking about a worldwide catastrophic event. And they're saying God has never intervened in creation like that since the beginning, and there's no reason to think he will now. Those are their arguments. Peter said, i got to remind you what the Word says so you 
Don't fall victim to these skeptors and mockers who are going to try to pollute your thinking and deceive you and follow after their worldliness. They're going to try to convince you. Look, live your life. Do what you want to do. Right? If it feels good, do it. You only got one life, live it to the full. What they mean is pursue your sinful passions. You're never going to have to answer to the Lord. He's not coming back. That's a fantasy. Peter said, you better remember what the word says. One of the things that we see a lot in this day and time, we have kids who grew up in church, grew up hearing the word of God preached every Sunday. They go off to college. When they go off to college, they're no longer under the preaching of the word. They're no longer at home with mom and dad who read the Bible and pray they're separated from that Christian influence. And by the end of four years, they have become thoroughly pagan. They have begun to believe every, every liberal ideology. They've, their morals have gone from biblical to absolutely corrupt. I've seen it over and over. What happened? When they get away from the influence of the word... They fall under the influence of the world. And it pollutes their thinking and corrupts them. That's what Peter says. That's why I'm telling you, remember what the Word says so you don't drift away from the truth and let your thinking get polluted and corrupted. You understand? But what about these arguments the false teachers make? They do make arguments to support their belief. What about that? Peter responds to those in verses 5 through 7. And this is the second thing we need to do in dealing with those who would deny the second coming, those who would ridicule it. First, remember what God's Word says. Secondly, recognize their arguments are invalid. Recognize their arguments are invalid. Valid. So I mentioned to you in verse 4, one of their arguments is God has not intervened in any cataclysmic way since the very beginning. There's no reason to believe He will now. Peter says, verse 5, when they maintain this, when they make this argument, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. What's that all about? Long ago, at the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You remember what it said? And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. In other words, all there was at the beginning was a watery chaos. That's all that existed. That's what he means when he says the heavens existed. Just that watery chaos. Then he says, watch it, watch the words of it in verse 5. By that word... The heavens existed long ago, that watery chaos. And the earth was formed out of water and by water. Out of that watery chaos, the earth was formed out of water and by water. Here's the idea. 
there's this watery chaos, the heavens. Just And you remember the Bible says God separated the waters from the waters. The upper waters became the sky, right? The lower waters became the earth. That's creating water out of water. And then by water. Think about this. The second part of that, after God separated the water so that there's an upper water, layer of water, the skies, the heavens, and there's a lower water, what did he do next? He gathered the waters together so that dry land appeared. Earth was created from water and out of water. The waters separated to create the heavens and the earth, and then the waters gathered together so dry land appeared. You get the picture? What's the point? At the beginning of creation, all there was was a watery chaos. And God did intervene in a cataclysmic way. How? He created the earth out of all of that. Are you following me? So when they say since the beginning of creation, God has never intervened in any real worldwide cataclysmic way. Oh, yes, He did. In the beginning, all there was was just a watery chaos, unformed and unfilled. And God shaped it and formed it and filled it and made the earth and everything in it. If that's not cataclysmic and catastrophic, I don't know what is. But that's not the only case He makes. Look. In verse 6, he speaks of the world being formed out of water and by water, through which, through which the water, through the water, the world at that time was destroyed, being deluged with water. What's he referring to there? The flood. The flood. Has God ever intervened in creation in a worldwide cataclysmic way other than creation itself? Do this. Yeah, the flood. The flood destroyed all life on the earth. That's as widespread as you can get. Except how many people? Eight. So when they argue, he's not coming back. He's never intervened on no grand scale like that since the very beginning. Oh, but they're wrong. That's what Peter said in verse 5. It escapes their notice. They're not thinking. They're not thinking. Because God has intervened in creation in a cataclysmic way more than once. And there's no reason to believe He won't do it again. Notice what it says in verse 7. By His Word... Remember it said He created the world by His Word? By that same Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and ungodly men. Just as God's Word brought about creation and the flood, His Word is now holding creation, keeping creation in its current state until the day of the Lord when it will be destroyed by fire. And he says two things here. On the day of the Lord, the world itself will be destroyed by fire. The heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment. And not only that, the ungodly will be destroyed, face eternal destruction. 
Notice verse 7 again. The present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Just as God destroyed sinful mankind once before in the flood, He's going to destroy sinful mankind again eternally, cast them into damnation, and He's going to bring this present heavens and earth to a catastrophic end. Isaiah 66 Verses 15 and 16, For behold, Yahweh will come in fire, and His chariots like the whirlwind, to return His anger with wrath and His rebuke with flames of fire. For Yahweh will execute judgment by fire and by His sword on all flesh, and those slain by Yahweh will be many. See, people willfully ignore or they willfully deny that God has ever intervened in creation in any cataclysmic way. Why? So they can avoid the reality that he's going to do it again. Think about this. How many people have died of a heart attack who were telling themselves, you know, I feel something going on, but that's not a heart attack. I, I mean, I'm not having a heart attack. I couldn't be having a heart attack. I'm in great health. Nothing wrong with me. My last physical was good. And so they begin to feel some pains and things, and they, they dismiss it, right? And that's not going to happen to me. I'm, I'm not having a heart attack. Nobody in my family's ever had a heart attack. And what happens? Right? How many people that happened to? It's the same thing. People deny the truth. They, they, they deny the reality that's right there in front of them and they do it because they don't want to believe that never happened to me. But guess what? It's going to happen. Their arguments are invalid. There's another argument they make I want you to notice. They argue too much time has passed. Do you see that in verse 4? Where is the promise of His coming? Why has this not happened yet? There's no reason to think this is going to happen. It's been too long. It would have happened already. Peter says the fact that the Lord hasn't returned yet should not weaken your faith at all. Why? Look at verse 8. Because God doesn't reckon time the way we do. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. This is from Psalm 90, verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. Now, let me tell you what this means and what it doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that in God's reckoning of time, a thousand days, a, a thousand years on earth in heaven is just one day. It's not what it means. He's saying for God a thousand years is like one day. It's, a, it's an analogy. He's not telling us how they keep time in heaven. Why? Because they don't keep time in heaven. God exists outside of time. God intervenes in time, but He's not bound by time. So what He's saying is what seems like a thousand years on earth to God is just a blink of an eye. God doesn't count time the way we do. It seems like a long time since Jesus went back to heaven for you and I. But in God, it's not a long time. It's just a short time. It's a moment. God doesn't count time like we do. But there's another reason this argument about time is invalid. Verse 9. 
The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Those who lack understanding of God's ways would say, God is being too slow to keep his promise. He would have already done this if he were going to. But what Peter's saying here, God is not being slow in the way you might think of being slow. God is, in other words, God is not delaying. God is not putting it off. God is just not just letting time go by and, and not thinking about it. He's not ignoring what he promised. Well, what's he doing then? Why so long? God is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, we need to talk about what that means and what it doesn't mean. God is patiently waiting for the salvation of sinners. Now, I need to make sure you don't miss this. It says God is not willing for any to perish. Does that mean God is waiting for everybody to get saved? No. Because we already know there are going to be some that perish. When it says he's not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, he doesn't mean all people who were ever created, because we know from the Bible that's not going to happen. There is a real hell and people are going to go there. So what does he mean? When he says he's not willing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance, it means God is not willing to let any who are going to be saved not be saved. In other words, God is waiting patiently until all of those who will be saved are saved. Let me help you think of it this way. You remember John chapter 10? John chapter 10 is the, Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. They know me and I give to them eternal life. Remember that? In that same discussion, Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring those sheep. Then there'll be one fold with one shepherd. What he's talking about is the Gentiles. Because at this time, Jesus had only preached the gospel to the Jewish nation. But Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, but I'm going to get them, and then there's going to be one fold, all of God's people, and one shepherd. Now, I want you to think about this. At that time, the Gentiles hadn't even heard the gospel yet, but what did Jesus call them? My sheep. When he says, I'm not willing for any to perish, what does he mean? He means, I'm not willing to let any of my sheep be lost. Those who have been saved, those who are now saved, those who will be saved. I'm not going to lose any of my sheep. You with me? I'm not going to lose one of them. What's he waiting for? He's waiting until that last sheep finally comes home. And when that happens then the end will come. So is God delaying? No. God is not delaying. Verse 10. 
but. God is being patient, waiting for all of his sheep to come home, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be found out. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. It means it will come when people least expect it. First Thessalonians 5, 2 and 3. You yourselves know full well the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night while they are saying peace and safety. Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman who is pregnant and they will never escape. He says here, the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. What's this idea of a roar? You ever heard the term a roaring fire? That's the idea. The roar of the fire of God's wrath. As he said, the elements will be burned up with intense heat. Like a roaring fire, the earth will be consumed. And the heavens here refers to what we see above us, the atmosphere the earth exists in. And the elements themselves refers to the physical earth. In other words, creation as we know it, above and below, is all going to be dissolved, burned into ashes before the Lord of glory. And notice what it says, something that seems weird the last part of verse 10, and the earth and its works will be found out. What is that all about? He's picturing the earth as the setting where human history has unfolded. And he's saying all that has happened on the earth in human history is going to be found out or laid bare. In other words, the works of every person who has lived on the earth, all that has been done in this world from the beginning of time is going to be exposed. The point is, on the day of judgment, the works of those who do evil will be exposed. They're going to be found out. 1 Corinthians 3, 13. Each man's work will become evident for the day will indicate it because it is revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. That's the idea. God's coming despite his patience. He's being patient that all his sheep may come home. But when all of the sheep come home, the end's going to come. The wrath of God is going to roar like a fire and dissolve all of creation as we know it. And every evil action of every ungodly man, woman, and child will be laid bare before the Lord of glory. The day's coming. Hebrews 10, 37. For yet... In a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. It ends coming. God is not delaying. God is being patient. He's being patient. In my junior year of high school, I had Miss Boutwell for English. Did you have Miss Boutwell? I had Miss Boutwell for English my junior year of high school, fourth period. One day in class, me and two friends, John Lowe and Michael Skinner. Michael Skinner is the son of Harold Skinner. that used to have Harold Skinner Ford here in Columbia, 
Well, his son was one of my close friends. Me and, me and Michael and a guy named John Lowe were in class and we were cutting up. That's just kind of who we were. We were cut ups. And we got kind of carried away. But you know, she, she didn't say anything. She, she, you know, she was just kind of letting it go. And so we just assumed, you know, she's good with it. She's okay. So we kind of just kind of kept going, kept cutting up, kept making comments. And we kind of started poking fun at her. And Well, at some point she blew her top. And as she directed me and my two friends to depart her classroom, her exact words were, even God won't get you back in here. Well, God didn't. Mr. Daniels did, but God didn't. Although we did spend about three weeks sitting at the cafeteria table with Mr. Daniels until he got her calmed down enough to let us back in class. What's the, what's the idea there? What's the thought? We mistook her patience for passivity. We thought she was going to be passive and not do anything. She wasn't. She was just being patient. But her patience came to an end. Listen to me. People are going to look at the passing of time and think, he's not going to come. He's not going to do anything. What are they doing? They're mistaking his patience for passivity. They're mistaking his patience for passivity, and that is a foolish mistake. Let me try to bring all this together for you. What do we do when we're faced with those who would deny the second coming? When people ridicule the second coming, remember what God's Word says and recognize your opponent's arguments are invalid. When people ridicule the second coming, remember what God's word says and recognize your opponent's arguments are invalid. Let me, let me give you this in a way that you might can remember it easily. Think of it like this. When people ridicule the return of the Lord, remember the word of the Lord. Right? When people ridicule the return of the Lord, Remember the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord not only says he is coming, but the word of the Lord proves their arguments are all invalid. When people ridicule the word of the Lord, remember. When people ridicule the return of the Lord, remember the word of the Lord. You, you remember Genesis chapter 3? Eve is in the garden. That old snake, the devil is there. And he tells Eve, did God really say you can't have that apple or whatever it was? I don't think it was an apple because I love apples. I think whatever that fruit was is gone. Did God really say you, you can't have that? What's he doing? He's wanting her to question what God's word said. What did God really say? What he said, you, you're not going to die, right? He, she said, well, God said if we eat, we'll die. He said, you're not going to die. You're going to be like God. What, what are these people who deny the second coming? You're, you're not going to be judged if you live the way you want to. He's not coming back. Did, did, did he really say he's coming back? He, he's not coming back, right? And he bought into that lie. And what happened? 
a world's plunged into sin. What happens if you believe the lie? He's not coming back. You can live any way you want to. It comes down to this. Are you going to trust the empty arguments of godless people? Or are you going to trust the word of the living God? Understand, the reason people deny the second coming is to justify living the way they want to. They want to indulge all the passions and desires of their sinful human nature, and they want to do it with no consequences. So they deny the second coming, which means they deny the day of judgment, and that leaves them free to indulge their pleasures with no consequences. Listen, but denying the Lord's return will not prevent the Lord's return. He's coming back. And those who disregard Christ for the pleasures of this world are ensuring their own judgment. And if you buy into their godless teaching and embrace their godless way of life, you will suffer their fate. Please don't do that. Hold on to the word of the one who cannot lie and cannot fail. Trust the word of the one who always keeps his promises. When people ridicule the return of the Lord, you remember the word of the Lord. Let's pray.